Conrad, my juicy little movie boy. I thought this was the worst Super Bowl film I've ever seen. I've seen a, a quite a few now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I am unsure. I think that my continued exposure to Uva Bowl films <laughs> has sort of blurred the lines for me um, because this this didn't seem like his worst. It was bad. Yes, it was not particularly engaging. Uh, I think it helped considerably that uh, I watched it with someone, which is not something I, I usually do. Yeah, like I was still watching this um, in my office because I don't want to inflict this on the rest of my family. So I just watch them on the computer alone and uh, annoyed that I'm doing it at like five in the morning. Yeah, I can I can understand that. And it's I mean, it's a confusing film and it's also not helped by the fact that I mean, I personally just I have zero experience with Far Cry, so I can't tell how bad it is in relation to what Far Cry was putting out there. Yeah. You see, I had uh, I had the exact same issue, except I am familiar with Far Cry, except the one that matters. Um, right. Because I jumped on board with Far Cry 2, which was, of course, far more famous. It was the big critically acclaimed, if a little divisive because of some of the bugs, especially, that were in it. And I'm not just talking about the mosquitoes. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but my point was I got on board the Far Cry train with two alongside a lot of people never bothered to get back to the first one so I'm familiar with all of them except that first one I played all the others um, to completion and not that one um, except Far Cry 5 obviously because it ain't come out yet uh, yeah so Far Cry 5, by the way, sorry to cut in, but if Bowl ever got the license for that one, he'd have a fucking field day with that. And that's just based off trailers. I know exactly the movie Bowl would make with the plot of Far Cry 5. Yeah. Which is uh, set in, um, I think it's Montana, or it's like, it, wherever it's set, it's like a, a, a religious, like Christian cult. Okay. In America. Right. Rather than, you know, out in a, a more exotic location. So you just know exactly. That is just 90 minutes of redneck stereotype shooting shotguns. Yeah. You know exactly what you're getting with that. And I'd prefer that over this, which again, maybe it was just me. Maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind today. But this is the least engaged I've ever... I was very lispy there. I sounded like a snake. Uh, this is the least engaged I've ever been with, with an Uwebowl film. Um, there are crappier made films. By by many accounts, this is one of the better made ones. Yeah, and, and I would... I mean, I would agree with that. The effects are uh, classic bowl. It's, it's a believable prequel to Prometheus. <laughs> because those mutated soldiers that are in it are the spitting fucking image of the engineers. To the point where, like, they don't look like crappy facsimiles. Like, they look startlingly decent. Like, a cosplayer that's put enough effort to be, like, featured in, a like, a Vice or a BuzzFeed article or something. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty decent Prometheus engineer cosplay. Right. B before Prometheus was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it is a canonical prequel, which in turn <laughs> means if a bold directed an Aliens uh, movie. Well, he's kind of trying to at the beginning, although it's a little more Predator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it tries to be many things, as you pointed out before we recorded it. Yeah. Um, you described it as a mix of Predator and... Uh, Rush Hour. Rush Hour, yeah. Or a comedy like Rush Hour, yeah. Yeah. A comedy in the vein of Rush Hour. You see, I... And again, this this may have been... Because when one of these films aren't engaging, I always have a lot of shit to do, so I drift. I've still got it playing, but it'll end up, parts of it will be background noise. And I'll switch back in when it sounds like something's about to actually fucking happen. Um, I don't mean to do it often. It never sounds that way. (laughs) I don't mean to do it often. Um, as often as I do, but so few of these films are like 100% engaging and I've got a mind that wanders. Yeah. And this, I I couldn't pay attention. Like, I was queuing up porn that I was going to watch after, like, instead of, of paying attention to this. And I don't mean to say that because people are going to take offense and be like, well, we sat through and fucking watched it. And I'm sorry that, that anyone listening did. And I'm sorry, Conrad, that you did, although you had a better time than me. Even That's the thing. Even as distracted as I was, I was, it was a miserable time being distracted. I just, every time I was looking at it, I was, I, I got nothing out of it. Like, nothing. It was, wasn't even good or bad. It was just this... It was pure mediocrity, and usually Uwe films at least have something I can find funny or some performance that will engage me enough. The only thing I got out of this was the fact that I've been binge-watching Archer a lot recently, <laughs> like doing a lot of rewatches. So every time someone said Dr. Krieger, I automatically <laughs> went, yup, yup, yup! And that's, that was, it. someone would go, you know, Dr. Krieger, yup, yup, yup! Couldn't help it, Pavlovia. Yup, yup, yup. <laughs> I mean, okay, well, it's unclear what kind of film Uva Bull was trying to make in a lot of ways. But I mean, it it is clear that he was trying to make a movie based on Far Cry, which is not always the case with his no, no. his films. I mean, you know, you look at In the Name of the King, or <laughs> uh, or any of the Blood Rain films i mean especially yeah i mean the the liberties he took with those but here here i just again now not having played the game so i don't i don't know but looking at comparing the wikipedia plot summaries of the video game and and what the film became i mean most of the stuff tracks over it's you know it's a, it is something of a rarity i mean Uberball's told me like, he's actually told me in an interview that, uh, you know, video game licenses are cheap, therefore he can make his own stories. Right. Like, he can just get a license to make something, um, get the funding for that. And, you know, there's there's off the, the whole talk about them being tax write-offs um, may or may not be true um, for a German filmmaker. Uh, but at least he's gone on record as saying that he he enjoys being able to take liberties because he gets to just tell his own thing. Right. So him sticking closely to the, the original plot of Far Cry, which again, admittedly I've not played, um, is, uh, uh, not common. No, it's not, but uh, he must've really liked the plot. I guess uh, he apparently option, according to the Wikipedia page for the film, he apparently optioned it before it was out. Right. Like he was 
ready there to get the license for it. He's like, oh, this is a, a simple action premise thing. I can work with that. But the things that he brought over, the main character is seemingly largely the same uh, in terms of his characterization and, and, and his role and position. He runs a boat charter business. He gets hired by a character that seems very similar to the one that wound up in the film. He's played, the main guy is played by that guy from Inglorious Bastards. Um... Uh, Till Schwieger. Yeah, I think he was in Inglorious Bastards. That could be. Um, but, you know, he gets contracted to go to this island in secret. His boat gets blown up. Like, lots of the things, the plot beats of the game, in a lot of ways, wind up in. It actually trims it back a bit. There seems to be a whole, like, nuclear weapons subplot. Uberpol wasn't interested in that bit. Didn't didn't make it into the film. That's fine. But, uh, yeah, largely l- largely similar. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, strange, I guess, for, for Uva. I, my expectation is that he's going to vary wildly. And, and in a lot of ways, it probably does. Uh, but in terms of, like, core elements, he, he's tried to translate. Conrad, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. Even for the bits I was paying attention to, I've plum forgotten. I can't... The, I can't remember... There's a gap in my fucking brain. I'm not even trying to be funny. Like, I remember what people looked like. I remember two guys tied to a tree. I remember uh, the, 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 they wanted to see whales, the couple on, on Carver's mm-hmm. boat at the beginning. Um, the woman was like, I want to see whales, um, in this sort of over-the-top, annoying, whiny voice. Um, I remember there being that other actor, um, you know, the the larger actor, he who kept telling people in the movie he was the food guy. Um, but I don't remember what significance he had on the plot. Um, I remember, obviously, the Prometheus aliens. I remember Dr. Krieger. Yup, yup, yup. And that's it. I remember a little more than that. Yeah, this podcast is going to be... It's going to have to be you just reminding me <laughs> what the film was. Well, then maybe we should just do that. Yeah, and and I'll be, again, I'm going to level with you. I'm just going to be thinking about Warframe the whole time. (laughs) Also, that thing you told me about rainwater drinking. Yeah. Which we optioned for a joke on our comedy podcast we do, Fist Chuck Marketing, where we come up with... Months ago, we had this idea. Yeah. We come up with awful products no one should want. And then Conrad tells me one of our ideas, which was drinking rainwater, is what people are literally doing now. Just just drinking out the fucking river, which is how you get Viles disease. That's what my nan told me. And that's an insult. They're fucking burying her next week. <sighs> and she's the one who warned me about Viles disease. And they're going out fucking drinking it. Unbelievable. Water that rats piss in. And that's the new trend. And you were telling me it was all about how flavorful it is and the mouth texture or whatever. Yep. Unbe-fucking-leavable. <laughs> we were warned. It's a sad world we're living in, Jim. It's a really dark place. As a kid, I took a risk playing in the water, like playing in the river, like the River Cry or whatever it was. I don't know. It went It went through Bexley Forest, right? Mm-hmm. Playing in that. You just take a... You take a gamble that you haven't got a cut on your foot. It was the original loot box for kids. <laughs> um, you took a gamble that you didn't have a cut on your foot 
the you erupt a date on your tetanus jab because you know your parents took care of all that shit. Uh, that reminds me, I probably am overdue a tetanus shot. A rusty nail could be the end of me, chaps. Oh, I'm definitely long overdue for that. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to try and assassinate us, you know, there's your in. Yeah, send us some, send us some artisanally sourced natural water or whatever they're fucking calling it. What are they fucking calling it? Raw water. Raw water. That the name's more annoying than the concept. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Far Cry. Yep, yep, yep. Now here I am trying to bring up the wrong stuff to look at. Right. <laughs> Just give us the plot of Blood Rain the Third Rain. Well, that was, I, I almost, I was going to start on whatever it was we had last, which was uh, Dead Space Downfall. You know what? If you just did the plot, and this, this, the podcast restarted, by the way. If you just just redone the plot of Dead Space Downfall, I, I'd have, I had more to say, and it would have, I mean, those are two different things. So it would have, I, not mattered. How long would it have taken you to notice? I mean, that's, yeah, you could have, obvious, yeah, you honestly could have started telling me any other film we've done. Um, You could have started with the plot of Jigsaw, which, oh, disappointing. Yeah. Speaking as a Saw fan, who has found something to love or laugh at in every other film? This one, blank stare throughout. That's a bummer. Pedestrian. Like, even at their worst, the Saw films are uniquely Saw films. This, any other movie, apart from maybe one trap, which was a little bit inventive, it, it was just any other movie. And the, the ending was pathetic. It's a pathetic film. Anyway, sorry, Far Cry. Yeah, Far Cry. So f- we, it opens up in a jungle um, at night where a group of soldiers are... You know, scouting the area or driving around or something, and their cars have stopped. That jokes my memory. Right? Yeah. I, I guess they're meeting up with some other team that's already out in the area, but they make a big deal out of how, like, oh, these devices on our cars have, have made our cars inoperable here. Yeah. What I like about today's podcast is it's like those video games, like one of those many hundreds of thousands of video games where the main protagonist has amnesia and they hit upon pieces of like like things that happen in the plot like fragments fragments yeah that that trigger a flashback that's this i'm experiencing that for real (laughs) it's weird it's wow i'm just like like 90 percent of video game protagonists Discounting Ubisoft ones who are all avenging the death of a family member. Right. Yes. So in in this, well, I mean, I I guess this is technically Crytek and not Ubisoft. Yeah. Don't fucking get me on that one. Okay. Fucking listeners. Actually, I mean, the original Far Cry was like ye olde Ubisoft back when it was still decent. That's true. Today's modern, um, especially Montpellier, um, no, not Montreal. Sorry, Montpellier did, um, and which I'm pronouncing it wrong, did uh, the Raymans. Uh, too pure for this sinful earth, that game. That's, oh, uh, yes. Um, but a lot of the Montreal, uh, your Assassin's Creed, your, I mean, even the crew, even a racing game, the plot was avenging the death of a family member. Like, I think they have one writer who has seen one film. <laughs> so the, these soldiers, they're hanging out with their trucks, 
And this guy comes running out, you know, and he's like the only soldier left from the other group of soldiers they're supposed to meet up when he's like, oh, we got we got killed. And and so they send that guy back to base to get back up and and wait for whatever is chasing him to come. (laughs) And and it's this dragged out sort of sequence. It's very Predator. That describes most of the movie, a dragged out sequence. Right, but it's it's very Predator. Like this the one of the vehicles gets turned over and they shoot the fuck out of it. Uh and and you know, it seeming seems that the monster or whatever it is that's behind it, you know, is they think, oh, it's got to be dead by now. And so then they they stop. And one by one, he starts eliminating them by pulling them away from the others. And Yeah, yeah. No, no, it, it is very Predator. And again, as as you describe it, I'm getting... Like, I, re- I now remember the the way this ends. Yeah. Like, the, like, what happens to the last guy? Completely gone from my mind. But I hit that memory fragment. Right. So the, the the one that had come out of the woods and alerted the others and gets sent on ahead, you know, well, he gets to live a little bit longer and he, he makes it to the fence and he's radioing for help and nobody's responding. And then you know, the the monster, we only see uh, a first person perspective view from its eyes uh, at this point in the film. So we don't actually get to see the monster. Yeah. It sort of adds to that predator vibe of an unseen monster in the jungle. Exactly. Um, and so the, the guy screams or whatever. Um, I can't remember, but you know, he's over by this fence and he's screaming and blah, blah, blah. And then it cuts to a lab where we see that scientists, uh, including our, our good friend, Udo Kier, we, I, I love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he is there to uh, witness all of this, and you know it's a great job that their soldier has done, their their, their research project, whatever it is, is. I remember so well. this scene now. Yeah. Sorry, memory fragment. I like. I need to find like a, a shattering. I'm not gonna do it because it'll be effort. But you know, a shattering glass sound effect. Memory fragment. <laughs> Shatter and then. As it like like zooms in on my face, right, and then replays a flashback in black and white of of Zelda going Link, Link. <laughs> well, uh, after the the scientists you know pat each other on the back at how successful they are, we get to see what happened to the poor soldier, and uh, he's. <laughs> this is the only good bit of the film. The soldier's body has been pressed into the fence. About halfway, mm-hmm. so that the the grid of the fencing <laughs> has penetrated halfway through his body, like the lasers in Resident Evil. Actually, yeah, except like if the lasers stopped halfway through and just <laughs> right. left them like an open grapefruit at the back. It's the only bit of the movie I, that held my attention and that I enjoyed. <laughs> Not not a terrible practical effect. It was lit effectively for it. Honestly, not. Yeah, like, I mean, I, you know, there's better. Sure. But there's way worse. Like, and in terms of Uva Bowl, that's impressive stuff. Um, again, same for the, the mutated soldier costumes. Um, as far as practical effects go for an Uva film, shit ain't too bad in this one. Um, again, maybe he really liked this movie and wanted to push the boat out. To so to speak. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess for me, the mutated soldier 
designs, they're not that different from the zombie designs in uh, in House of the Dead. Uh, I guess it's just that they look so much like the Prometheus engineers to me. But here's the thing about them is that they're at least consistent in appearance. Mm-hmm. And it's not complicated. No. It's not overcomplicated with a whole bunch of like costuming and stuff like that. They basically just put them in you know military cargo pants and... And covered them in pancake. Yeah, they're like milky looking. Yeah. With the soulless eyes. It's a simple look. So after we get to see that corpse, we're given the uh, Far Cry title. And we cut to a a small boat out on the water where a couple is trying to do some whale watching. And uh, we meet our hero, Jack Carver, who's the captain of this little vessel. And he's just so not into it. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> he's just... He's just not interested in being a boat tour guide at all. And to the point where he gives the wheel to one of the tourists and just goes get it goes into the cabin of the boat to get drunk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think he was the hero at first. No. And again, maybe that's because I didn't play Far Cry One. I, yeah, I know I knew he was the hero because he was the wearing he was wearing the same type of red floral shirt that the character on the cover of the Far Cry box wore. You see, that's funny. I Every time I hear the word Far Cry, my brain flashes with a memory trigger, a memory fragment. Uh, the uh, box art, but I, I don't remember the color of the guy's fucking shirt. So to, to me, especially because the guy playing him is normally a very fantastic supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect him to be in the lead. Uh, I expected, you know, um, half-hearted, com- like sardonic comic relief character was going to be his thing. Um, and instead he becomes a rather dull main lead, which is not his speed setting at all. No. Um, which again is part of the reason why I tuned out because he was just not n- not that role. No, I, I, I agree with that. And this... But this bit, he is this role, not giving a fuck going off to get drunk. Right. And I think the thing about it that is also a little bit confusing is that uh, Uva likes to do some misdirect on on who is uh, which characters are going to be, you know, important early on. Yeah, I mean, we could call it misdirect. He likes to try to be clever with that. We could call it misdirect or him just forgetting who he made important <laughs> in earlier scenes. Him just not having a handle on how to uh, design a narrative. Yeah. He'll write someone as a protagonist, kill them off, and then just use another one. <laughs> and and it's not... He just didn't... This is speculation, by the way. Um, no, it is probably more likely that he's trying to be clever. Yeah. So... From there, we we get to meet our bad guys, I guess, in more detail. Uh, we we meet uh, Doctor Krieger. Yup, yup, yup. And I like that you made a little bit of space for me. You're welcome. And uh, a Chernov, who is uh, like the head of this whole movie, is a Chernov. <laughs> She's like the head of a, uh, a like a private military group, I guess. Like there's yeah. there's multiple factions at play in this, which is kind of strange. There are uh, private military, private mercenary contractors who are led by this Chernov. Mm-hmm. And then there's a uh, a group of actual military commandos, I guess, led by uh, uh, a guy named Summers, I think. And that's played by Michael Pare, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, 
memory fragment. Yeah. Now, yeah, I remember a familiar man being a soldier. So, um, Krieger's in his office. Yep, painting. yep, yep. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't pause for it. I'm gonna stop with that immediately. It's my fault. My fault. No, I'm gonna stop. It's it's gonna happen in my head in between moments of thinking about Warframe, uh. <laughs> but it, it just for the audience. I'm thinking it, but I'm not gonna say it. That sounds that sounds good. Yeah. So the, the doctor is is painting in his studio. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird, right? Just he's just sitting there painting while his military his, his his private military contractor head comes in and says, "All right, well." It's to just establish that the villain is not one dimensional. I guess yes. I suppose that's true. Yeah, if a bottle in the day was like, oh, just have him just fucking painting. I don't know. Like he's refined. No, he's he's painting. He's drinking a glass of wine. Of course he is. He's very relaxed. That's what he does. He's a cultured villain. The uh, his churn off the uh, the the. This is the private person. Because again, I have to. Clear, make clear there's two groups working here. You get Chernov and Summers. Chernov comes in and says, all right, well, you know, my soldiers are all dead. The soldiers that I, you know, sent from my group to go fight your super monster. Well, so it was a great success. You know, they were all well paid. That makes it worth it. Summers comes into the room. He's the military guy, and he's all upset that soldiers have been killed because he just thinks that, you know, uh, we don't just kill soldiers. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Noble, I guess. But they're trying to establish here that we have good noble soldiers and evil money-grubbing soldiers. Yeah. And and they, they want to make sure that distinction is laid out early here in the film. It's a classic tale about two different types of soldiers. Two different types of soldiers. Right, exactly. Not like that fucking generalizing, tasteless movie Universal Soldier that just said they're all the same. They're not universal. They're different. That's why this movie's better. I, you know, I, I wish, I wish we were watching Universal Soldier. I wish we were watching so many other movies whenever we do this. Not Jigsaw though. I've never. I, I, I was so confident because I loved all the others that I bought that. Yeah. And that's just with me now. I should have rented. I should have rented. So, uh, leaving. This meeting, uh, Summers and one of the other soldiers named named Max uh, express their mutual concerns over this, and Max is pretty upset. And Summers is like, "Well, you know, you could leave." And Max is like, "I think I could do more good on the inside." <laughs> He's a font of originality when it comes to writing characters and their motivations. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I shouldn't say that about Uber Ball. He didn't write this; he just directed it. Whoever did write it, what a master. Uh, it was it, it was written by Michael Resch, Peter Shearer, and uh, Masaji Takei. Well, I mean, it, it's a, it is a three-person job, isn't it? <laughs> oh, definitely. To, to create a character of, of this. You know, he's working to bring him down on the inside, you see. Okay. He doesn't, he's a soldier who doesn't agree with the, the bad things that are going on. That's a three-person job, that. Get that written. Uh, Michael Michael Resch also uh, wrote Alone in the Dark. Fucking hell. And House of the Dead 2. Oh, fuck him. And, and he directed Alone in the Dark 2. There's a 2? Yeah. Uh, and, and I didn't know there was an Alone in the Dark 2. There is. And and uh, uh, the other... We haven't watched Alone in the Dark 2. Did we? Did we do it already? We haven't. No. I don't think... 
Oh. <laughs> uh, and Peter Shearer, likewise, uh, shares credits on those films. Oh, God. Uh, and, and co-directed Alone in the Dark 2. It has two directors. Oh, my God. That's going to be wonderful, isn't it? Oh, I can't wait for a, a movie... A movie so ambitious it needed the two directors working 24-7, I bet. Tirelessly paying strippers. Peter Shearer is apparently... Buying coke. He's just deep in the ball camp. Huh? (laughs) Sorry, I was just uh, being envious of the lifestyle I imagine they lead. Oh, yeah. I I can only imagine how wondrous it is. So we go to a newspaper office. Where we meet Valerie. Valerie is a reporter who is doing a story on, I guess, the stuff going on on the island, because it's the only other thing we've seen. She's talking about this island and how, you know, there's not supposed to be a military thing there, but there is. And and her editor is not wanting her to pursue the story. So she decides, I'm going to take some vacation time and go pursue the story myself. I can't stop her. They can't. And and we also learned that, that Krieger... No, I'm not doing it. You don't have to make the pause. You're good. Already has, like, been in trouble for doing genetic (laughs) modifications on people in the past. He's a known actor in this. Genetically modify me once. Shame on you. (laughs) Uh, That's weird. A weird thing to establish for the character and, and that he's still working. But I guess he's resurfaced now after having gone into hiding. And, and working with military people. And so she finds this very suspicious and she's pursuing the story. She's got an inside source, which uh, we find out shortly is uh, is Max, the one of the two, the, the one guy who's staying in it to do good. And there's a photo of the two of them on her desk. So that's kind of the giveaway. Yeah, uh, certainly the giveaway for any paramilitary organization that she's pissing off. Well, you would think that they'd have done a background check and they would know that she ha- that he has a a an a niece that is a journalist. I mean, you'd think. You'd think. This is one of those organizations that sort of deserve everything they get coming to them, not just for the evil they do, but for the incompetence <laughs> as well. It it it's a little uh it's a little disappointing. But um well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's sort of standard for Uva that it wasn't really thought out. Uva and his three writing team, <laughs> the power trio of writers and directors, with Uva as the captain, it's a veritable Harlem Globetrotters. So cut back to the island, and we have a, uh, a military general coming to meet Dr. Krieger and see the research that he's been working on. Don S. Davis. This would be one of the last films he did. Fuck me. That's tragic, right? That's, oh, that's upsetting. It's, uh, of course, Don S. Davis, uh, for those who may not be aware, uh, Twin Peaks, um, and, and lots of other, he played lots of military guys mm-hmm. over the years. Um, General Hammond in uh, Stargate SG-1 and lots of other, lots of other stuff. God, so tragic that in his final year he would make this movie. I mean, that really does, yeah, that, that. That's not even funny. That's oh yeah, it's a real bummer. Like honestly, any anyone who ends a career year, not even it doesn't even have to be your final film. Just one of the last is just sad. 
not not even on a statement of as on you as an actor. It's just it makes me feel sad. Yeah, it, it's it's a bummer. So Krieger guy. Yep, yep, yep. Now you're just fucking with me. It's gaslighting you. Guides him through the facility, uh, showing him how advanced this, you know, research center that he's built is and how it's got fancy corridors. And he shows him one of the soldiers he's been working on. Now, he makes it a point to mention, hey, they've got 10 cells set up here. Yeah, so they could be they can have 10 of these guys at any given time that they're working on. He shows him one and it's, you know, a dude painted in white, you know, bald dude, muscular, painted in white, sitting in a cell. Uh, the general's like, yeah, he looks fit. Again, just imagine, uh, you know, someone, you, you see someone as an engineer at Dragon Con or something. Right. But wearing military pants. Yeah. And then they, they take him into a uh, another room where they have one of these soldiers sort of uh, restrained on a chair of some kind. And he's just sort of blank faced. And, and they give the general a gun and tell him to shoot it, but not in the eyes or mouth. So now we know where the weak points are. And he, and so he does. And boy, I mean, it was. I didn't comment on it during the earlier, like we're shooting all of the stuff uh-huh. scene. But the 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 gunfire effects in Uva Bowl films are always worthy of of additional mention. <laughs> and here in this scene itself, where it's just the one gun, and you can really focus on it. Boy, it is just the saddest little fl- flash. As as Don S. Davis pulls the trigger on this pistol, and and the bullets bounce off the skin of the thing, and that act, that effect actually is done pretty well. They they show a bullet hitting it and being flattened, and and I don't know why they can't spend a little bit more money and get better gunfire effects, but they could do this. Maybe he thinks they're good. That could be. Maybe he really likes them, and people have said like you can get better for cheaper, but he's like he likes these. That. That could be. Uh, so the, the general's very excited about all of this uh, until uh, he asks to have the guy, you know, taken out of the chair and, and move around. Is it, like, well, we can't do that because he'll just tear everybody in this room to shreds, which disappoints the general, understandably, because <laughs> he's he wants a soldier he can give orders to, not just a monster. He's one P-O-C-O. Hey-oh. Yup, yup, yup. <laughs> and and actually, as they're arguing about this, the uh, the thing gets one of its arms loose and uh, throws one of the scientists across the room. At that point, he's just trying. He's just trying to embarrass the doctor. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and so he has to be restrained and and sedated. And this gets you know into a heated argument between the general and Krieger, who's like, Krieger just wants more money. And he's like, if I had more money, I could totally, yeah, I could totally deal with this. I could fix this problem. And then the general's I, like, I'm also, I'm trying not to say yup 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 again now. Right. So if it does just pop out, it just happens. Yeah, that wasn't a euphemism for anything. <laughs> the general's like, you're not getting more money until I get something I can actually use. And so they're at a bit of an impasse. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a solution's coming. Because we cut to Max sending an email to his niece, Valerie, saying that, hey, they're almost done with developing these super monsters or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm sending out some pictures, but the story's got to run soon. And he gets an error message that says that the content that he's sending is in 
It goes against the confidentiality policies of the company. <laughs> so the email was stopped. And lo and behold, Chernov comes up behind him with some mercenary goons to... I like to think that the roles were so mm-hmm. badly written for confidentiality that his emails and his phone calls and everything he's been doing has been closely monitored up until this point. But... But he just never tripped it. Yeah. Like, they've been waiting to get him on a technicality. <laughs> One person's like, why don't we just shoot him? We're an even organization. It's like, shut up. We're doing this by the book. We're going to do one thing right here. Um, and so they've just waited for it. It's like, wait a minute. Is he sending, he's sending photos of the soldiers. He's sending photos of the mutant soldiers. We've got him. We've got him. <laughs> it is a bit like that. Yeah, because here they're they're ready to you know, circumvent any sort of uh, legal or ethical boundaries regarding the genetic modification of human beings. That's the trade-off. But God damn it, leaks? No, no, we are going to obey these whistleblower provisions to the letter. Well, here's the thing. They throw so many soldiers to their deaths against mutated super soldiers. They can't risk, like, firing any of them because they'll be understaffed. So you need a watertight case to bring to HR. (laughs) So, uh, we cut to Valerie. By the way, the rules would have allowed it to be snail mail. (laughs) You can mail the photos, just not electronically. Oh yeah, that'd have been fine. Again, terribly written confidentiality rules. That'd have been fine. And they're x-raying all of those letters, all the physical letters as they go. It's just, you know, none of it qualifies. Yeah, because they just, it wasn't included in the book. And they're not gonna, they're not gonna risk it. So we cut to Val driving up to wherever she's going. Uh, we hear her calling ahead to a boat rental place that has, uh, is seemingly where Jack Carver is employed because she asks to make sure that she gets Jack Carver. This is managed by a lovely couple. A, a beleaguered older man who is so put upon by his wife. Yeah, again, took three people to write this. To run their business. And, and this is, you know, now this is the point at which, again, the film, I'm confused. Is this a comedy? <laughs> or is this an action film? Because these comic scenes go really long. Yeah, yeah. Like, really long. Like, it's not just like, you know an action movie that's got comedy scenes like you know many movies are like that that's not what causes you to think is this an entire genre shift because Uber Ball and and his team have no sense of timing and pacing that you really can have a movie that ends up 50% comedy 50% action by accident because they don't know how to edit and 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 I think it loves the opportunities that comic dialogue exchanges provide like the the specific ones that they have set up i think they like them so much or they think there's so much potential in them yeah that they ran them long because they come back to these when they do them Mm -hmm. it's not just a one-off we're gonna do this joke once they'll come and do it a second time in short order jokes in uva bowl movies are like computer errors like even (laughs) if it goes a while before you see it again it's never the once and i i mean i don't want to like 
make a stereotype about Germans and humor, humor either. But you're gonna. No, I'm not, but I think that that exists and this isn't helping. I think there are some people that think Germans aren't funny, and Uva's not helping that. Well, yeah, I mean, Uva's not funny. Right. Like, that's that's the, the distinction. Uva Boll is not a funny man. No. Germans, very funny. Uva Boll, not funny. Not at all. So we go now back after this exchange where the couple that runs the boat thing have an argument about whether to wake up Jack because he's a drunk and was out drinking all night. We go back to Dr. Krieger performing a uh, a surgery on Max. <laughs> I love this surgery scene so much because it starts with him just putting a ribbon cable into an opening that he's cut into the back of his neck. Mm-hmm. It's just a computer ribbon cable. And he's just sticking it in the wound. There's <laughs> Again, there, there have been worse sets on movies he's done. Normally reserved for sequels and the like. Um, but yeah, yeah. Not not the best. Uh, okay, so but but then then he takes one of those like cameras mm-hmm. that they use for colonoscopies and inserts that into the and there is footage of the camera penetrating some kind of similar orifice i don't know if they actually shot like did they get the camera and shoot that or did they just buy someone's colonoscopy <laughs> <laughs> and put that on the monitor i heard that um David Cronenberg watched this movie and thought, well, why didn't I just think of that? That would have made this whole career quicker. So then they, uh, Krieger does some testing with Max and some flashlights to try and... I wish, it was, I wish he was doing a test with Max and some flashlights. Then I'd have paid attention. Flash, he flashes a light in his eyes and asks him to determine what color it is, and he correctly responds that it's red and then green. And and we see, I guess the... Uh, Are they called flashlights because they're shaped like flashlights? Yes. Oh, okay. Were you not aware of that? I, I always just guessed that's what it was, but I never bothered confirming. Yeah, it's it's so that you can have it, you know, sitting out on a countertop, and people will just assume that it's a flashlight and not think you're some sick perv. Oh, you'd need the cover on for someone to fall for that. (laughs) (laughs) So satisfied with the uh, results of his experimenting on Max, it seems that he's going to be able to give him orders. So that's cool. Nice. He's programming them now, and he thinks he's going to get his funding. So I used to like watching the Mighty Max cartoon. Had a very twisted concept on what evolution was. Um, they believe that if you evolved enough, you turn into a, a, a ball made of rainbow colours and you just fly off thinking a lot. Like a, like a ball of pure energy? Yeah, yeah, just a, like, like pure thought. That's a pretty common, you know, like, next stage of evolution thing. I mean, you remember the game Res did that. Yeah, but the thing is, Mighty Max doesn't understand that evolution is about changing to suit the environment you're in, not just laterally getting better until you reach some achieved superior thought state. And it's always bugged to me that Mighty Max got that concept so woefully wrong. They do get that sort of horribly wrong. Yeah, back to Far Cry, though. So then after, after we get this surgery scene... We go back to the couple at the boat rental, still arguing, arguing again over whether or not to wake this guy up. 
ultimately the woman decide, asks for her gun and it's a it's a it's a bb gun i guess that that she has or, or a pellet gun and she uses this to shoot the bell at the end of the pier to wake the guy up Perfect. who is indeed uh, sleeping on his boat in a sleeping bag. Uh, and this is happening just as Valerie arrives. Uh, during the conversation between these two people, we learn that Jack is a former special forces guy. So, little character establishment. That would probably be why she wanted Jack Carver specifically. It might be. It might have something to do with why she wanted that guy. She's driving him into the throat of danger and he's going to need a toothpick. <laughs> And before anyone asks me why he'd need a toothpick if he's going in the throat, <laughs> is to climb his way back up out of it. <laughs> so shut up. So they, they head out together, and uh, and they're having conversation together as they go. And, and she asks Jack, you know, if he knows a guy named Max, and he denies knowing who Max is, even though this woman claims that, oh, well, didn't you guys serve together? And this is while, you know, they're grilling fish. He makes her grill his fish while he sits and pilots the boat and they have this this conversation. She wants to get him to, you know, go out overnight. You know, he, she, she's supposed to go to this island and meet Max and they're gonna, you know, he, he she's gonna get all the dirt and, and f- from him then. But it's gotta be at night. Yeah. And Jack doesn't want to go at night. That's not his bag. So she brings up Max to try and get him to, you know, come and he denies knowing her. But then she uses the code word that they have, that, that Max and, and Jack had. Uh, titch tennis, I guess, I think is what it was. And, uh, you know, and that's how, you know, that, well, now we know that it's trusted info, intel, because she knows this word that only they know. So he finally, you know, like acknowledges, oh, okay, I know what's up. And she lays out what's going on and he agrees to to take her out ultimately. Uh, it's a really long, drawn out, boring scene that's, I guess, necessary to establish what their relationship is going to be because he's just completely resistant to everything she wants to do the whole, uh, the whole film. Just the whole fucking movie. God, this movie sucks. Just the more I think about it. So that night, they they do go to the uh, to the island on his boat, and Jack uh, doesn't want to take her there. Refuses to lead her into the forest, and will only take her as far as the shore. And after trying to convince her a couple of times not to go, she insists, and he rowboats her out there, leaves her on the shore, and then boats back, saying that you know if she's not back in six hours, he's just going to leave her there. Mm-hmm. Well, she heads into the forest, and she's immediately captured by Chernoff and her mercenaries, who then send a guy with an RPG to blow up Jack's boat. And he's sitting on the boat drinking his beer, and he looks up at the sky, and he sees this memory fragment. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember what a great shot the rocket dude was. Yeah, it looked like an improbable shot, but like through the trees, up and over. It was a beautiful arc. Really fucking like he was. It cuts back to him looking really pleased with himself. As well, he like, should. You have a right to be. Yeah. Was a... You tried to kill a man, but you. That was some. That was some fucking shooting that, that, with a rocket launcher, not like fancy pistol tricks. Yeah, fucking bazooka. I'm bringing that word back. And and it was he used it like artillery. Mm-hmm. That's what's so brilliant about it, is that he didn't have direct line of sight, you know, and fire directly at the boat like you normally would. No, he up out the trees. Dramatic arc. Yeah, I honestly thought I'd imagined it being that good, but you've confirmed it. Like, it 
I was I remember thinking that that looks like the kind of shot that should come from like the main henchman, like the dragon to the the villain. Right. It's that good a shot. <laughs> and I think it does just come from some bloke, doesn't it? Oh uh, yeah, just just one of the mercenaries. But guy. the mercenaries are like, you know, it's it's stated that they are the best in the world. So Well, I mean with with to control like to just know the right angle at which to shoot a rocket for that kind of shot at that range. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, he's clearly clearly the best in the world. Best in the world at rockets. Valerie is taken away by Chernov uh and and informed that Max uh Max's cover has been blown. Chernov communicates with uh Krieger and lets him know that they've got her and and Starts heading back while Jack emerges from his wrecked boat and and comes to shore. Soldiers are are looking for for his body, uh, and he manages to knock them out and take a gun and follow in pursuit of of Valerie and gets into a firefight with the mercenaries or, or, or steals the truck. I can't remember exactly how he does this, but he then goes and rescues her and 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 steals this truck that I guess he spots her in. I think I'd looked away when I was watching it. <laughs> they drive off and it becomes this chase sequence where she's handcuffed in the back and he is driving a Jeep or, or some vehicle, truck vehicle, and the uh, they're running away from the bad guys and shooting behind him and he gives her a universal handcuff key so that she could get herself out of the cuffs while he's driving. And there's some fancy driving in it. Uh, it's not, as chase seeds go, it's not terrible. It's just kind of long and boring like everything else that Uva Bull does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he drives backwards for a lot of it, and that's a neat-looking trick. It's a bit different from driving forwards. Yeah. Uh, and, and it ends uh, with some—as he's—after uh, she's she gets herself loose, he turns around and starts driving forward again, and she is just shooting weapons that she's finding in the back of the truck at the— oncoming chasing soldiers and the first thing she uses is like a net gun but that works out great because it ties up the guy who's on the rear mounted machine gun that's been shooting at them Mm -hmm. so that's fun and then he tells her to use grenades and she takes a grenade she throws it without having pulled the pin like come on That's all I can. All I can do in response to that is a stupid fucking the laugh of an idiot. And and he asked to tell her then, you know, to pull the pin, which then turns into a second fun comic scenario. Oh, I can't wait! Because she pulls the pin on a grenade, and then the vehicle jostles, and she drops it. And he asks, "Did you throw it?" Well, she and she says yes, but what she's actually done is just dropped it into the bag of grenades. Oh, that's a classic story of a grenade in a bag of grenades. So she just dumps the whole bag of grenades out the back instead of you know paying attention to the one that she lost. I mean, not a bad tactic. No, I mean, if, if, if you don't know which one it is, and it'll make a big ruckus. Yep, just get rid of them all. Yeah. And so that's what she does, and that blows up the pursuing vehicle. But now they've got a helicopter above them. Fuck, you can't, you can't just dump grenades on the road to stop a helicopter. No, you cannot. Proven fact, you can't stop a helicopter by throwing grenades on the road. Unless it's parked. But you know what you can do? You can scramble around for the next thing that you can find and point it upwards. Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly you can do that. And in this case, it's a harpoon gun. (laughs) What were the people in this vehicle, like, prepared to do? Were they going fishing? 
I mean, they're the best in the world. So they probably fish for whales like it's no big deal. It's just like a grapple. It's actually more like a grappling hook gun, I guess. Then, you know, it's like it fires a harpoon type spear that, you know, expands out and yeah. becomes That's a That's for catching the spiny grapple fish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure, why not? Um, in this case, she catches a helicopter with it. She just fires it up and it goes into the bottom of the helicopter and hooks in. And now the helicopter is tethered to the truck. You should have seen it. It was this big. <laughs> uh, Jack stops the the truck just as it's about to go off a cliff. And, and then this, you know, the helicopter goes, well, then it stops the helicopter. And then the helicopter slowly pulls it over the edge until it drops it into the water below, allowing them to escape in the water and survive. And get away from the bad guys. So now they're going to have to to search for them. Uh, so Jack and Valerie have, have fled, and then they go and and they find themselves in like a, a shack or something, like some some kind of hovely shack thing where they can rest up because he's been wounded. She's you know wet and they're cold, and, and and so they make a thing out of like undressing, but the other person has to look away while they're undressing. It's just a strange, awkward. It's not building sexual tension at all. It, it's not Im- suggesting that they're into each other. I guess it slowly starts to try to imply that that's where they're headed, but it's just kind of goofy. And then all of a sudden, like once they reach the point of, you know, okay, well, we could get hypothermic here in, in this jungle environment, by the way, which seems odd. I wouldn't expect it to get to hy- hypothermic temperatures in a jungle. Maybe that's me. Mm-hmm. Could be crazy. I mean, you I think it's the desert that does that. Well, I mean, if it gets... Well, at night, certainly, it gets that cold. Yeah. You know, and... and in The desert gets really cold at night, but really hot in the day. And in, you know, more temperate climates at night or in the off-season... You get cool, but but a jungle that seemed a little strange. Uh, but you know they're gonna they're gonna huddle up together and share body heat for warmth. And just like as soon as they do that, oh memory fragment! <laughs> I remember this terrible fucking undressing scene. Yes, and the moment that... where he makes a look away even though he doesn't take his underpants off. Right. Yeah. He just and he was already shirtless. Yeah. Fucking stupid. Hated that. And he crawls into the bed next to her. That they talk about. Well, maybe we should share body heat. And, and you're, oh, like spooning, yeah, something like that. And then, okay, and they move the, and then they kiss, like instantly. It's like, all right, well, we've gone from this practical sharing body heat solution to immediately having sex. Yeah, I mean, that's a Uber Bowl movie sex scene. That's how they that's go. That's how they go. One minute they're not having sex, the next moment they are having sex. And then we cut to the next. And if he can get away with it, breasts exposed for our pleasure. No breast exposed not... for our pleasure here. Yeah, not all the time can he get away with that. Well, apparently this was distributed by Walt Disney Studios in North America. Oh, gonna, probably, uh, probably not going to have the breasts exposed for our pleasure there. Probably not, yeah. Not from, not from the house of mouse. He's not a tit mouse. So the next morning... I was so pleased with myself. They go walking down the road, just middle of the road, middle of the day, bright and sunny, talking about his sexual performance... Oh, God, because he was like, yeah. Because, again, because this film has to keep it going. Um, I was going to say keep it up, but that would have been a whole thing. Um, yeah, it just it goes on about it. Like, 
we know they had sex, but the movie's terrified by the idea that we might not have gotten it <laughs> because we hadn't seen the breasts exposed. Right. And so he, you know, he asks asks her to rate him one to ten. He's not a secure man. No. And and she rates him a two. And it's supposed to be very funny. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be very funny. I remember this this whole sequence. I remember because. I felt very dead when watching it. Mm-hmm. Remarkably, notably dead. Well, as they they walk along, they they decide that they need wheels, I guess, and uh, so she stands in the middle of the road and flags down a an approaching truck. And the soldiers in the truck are like, "What the fuck is this?" One of them gets out and walks up to her and and is all, you know, hands up. And she puts her hands up. And and meanwhile, Jack comes around the back of the vehicle and subdues the driver, takes his gun, and then uses it to hold up the uh, other soldier. And then says, get undressed. And the guy's like, oh, God damn it, I'm getting undressed. And then Jack says, no, I meant her. And he's all, oh, well, that's way more appealing. The soldier's totally fine with being held up if she's getting naked. Oh, memory fragment again coming in. I remember this whole ridiculous shit. And, and then he says, what, you... I was kidding. You wish. And then, dejected, the soldier has to proceed to continue removing his uniform. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it ends with reminding him the hat. Oh, and, you know, and, and, and still going with the am I really only a two thing that, that comes up mm-hmm. again. Basically, any time now that you see Jack and Valerie on screen, uh, they're going to reference this rating that he's been given. Yeah. And hilarious joke fit for the, the it's such a good joke it needs to come up over so and over good. again um it took three people to write it for god's sake and they leave the two soldiers that they've taken the uniforms of uh tied to a tree and and we last see them on an overlong scene struggling to remove the gags from each other's mouths so we cut back to the military or, and the facility and and the uh, the good soldier guy is is complaining to the bad mercenary woman Chernov about uh, you know well, we shouldn't be killing soldiers and and even her men are kind of upset about the fact that uh, you know they're being cannon fodder <laughs> like they, one of the guys comes up to her and it's like kind kind of calls her on it and she's like look if, if you don't if you don't like this you can quit. He threatens to expose this shit, so she just kills him. <laughs> clubs him once. I vaguely recall this bit. Vaguely. She clubs him once in the knees, and he's like, oh, you're going to regret this. So she just turns around and shoots him in the, the head in front of her other soldiers and without any real regard for the fact that she has men behind this guy that she's shooting. Like, that bullet could have very easily passed through his head and into the leg of somebody standing behind from that angle. But she just shoots anyway. She's a badass. She doesn't fuck around. Uh, and, and But uses this to, you know, threaten the other soldiers into staying. Uh, Jack arrives driving the truck to this same location, apparently, and makes it past a checkpoint because he's dressed like a soldier and in the soldier's truck and parks it and he and Valerie go, he's like, I'm going to go find a boat. And you wait here. She's like, well, I'm not leaving without Max, so you can forget about that. And he's like, well, I'm then I'll just leave without you. And she's not okay with that, but still insisted that they're going to have Max. So I don't know what the solution mm-hmm. there ultimately is. But he goes anyway. And, uh, and, and she is immediately 
picked up on cameras that are all over this base. Yeah, well, they've known they were there from the start, but they needed camera evidence before they could say, we got them! Well, it's just, they just, we got them on a clause! They find her so, so easily, and it's, it's just instant. They would, they, basically, they were observing her the whole time, trying to find out what brand of shoe she was wearing, because there's a certain brand of shoe you can't wear on that island, <laughs> and the moment they worked out it was one of the band brands, got them. Got them. They study the footwear of anyone that goes on that island uh, if they are trespassing because it's written in their, their sub rules. It's a really badly written set of rules for kicking people off the island or detaining them. So Krieger, you know, sends Chernov's people to go apprehend her and, and, and bring her to see him. And so that's they just go pull her out from under this tarp she's hiding in. And, and that's that's the end of it. We, we cut to some soldiers. Are, they're unloading food from a, a boat that's arrived mm-hmm. uh, from the food guy. This is a, a guy named Emilio. He's a comic relief character. And and ah, yes, the food guy. Yeah. And he's he's tried. He, he's helping to unload the uh, the food from the thing. And he hurts his back. So he decides, oh, I'm going to take a break. And, and eat my sandwich. And so he's sitting there eating his sandwich when uh, he starts to choke on it. Oh, Memory yeah, fragment. Yeah. I remember the sandwich. He's, he's eating a sandwich. Not just because I'm fat, listeners. No, no, no. Because this I is just a, remember him eating the sandwich. This is a whole comic bit that's happening here. Because um, Jack is sneaking up on him, t- intending to steal the boat. As this guy, Emilio, the food guy, is eating his sandwich, and he takes this big old bite and starts choking, just as Jack is, like, gonna knock him out. And he's like, oh, well, shit, I don't want this guy to choke to death. Mm-hmm. So he performs the Heimlich on him, and, and then proceeds to, like, hold him up to steal the bow. Because <laughs> he gets caught by, uh, by... The good mercen- or by the good military leader guy. He, he catches them and, and realizes, hey, something's hinky going on here. Yeah. Um, but Jack manages to... I wish you'd have said it in that exact word. There's something hinky happening here? Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack uh, draws a, a gun on him and, and or subdues the military guy, takes his gun, and they takes the boat with, uh, with Emilio. And they're uh, off in, 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 in a boat chase that is, again, overlong and drawn out and, and not very good, mm-hmm. except for Emilio. I, I have to admit, I love this guy that plays Emilio. I've seen him before. I can't remember his name. I've seen the performer before. He's a, he's a funny dude. He has this you know, facial expression of shock and fear that he does so well. This mouth agape thing. He's one of the few actors impervious to Uwebel's talent drain ability. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, and, and and they give him a lot to chew in this. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he gets... Not just the sandwich. No, no. Very good, very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, he gets he gets to play around a bit. They they put him and, and Jack in... Well, he, they're captured at the end of this boat chase. And they are sort of put in a hallway together, handcuffed back behind each other and just sort of left there Krieger comes to ask about you know why he's there and he's like I'm just I'm just the boat driver I don't know what's going on 
And he just leaves it there. He's like, fine, we have the other person. Krieger's like, we, we've got the woman. Doesn't matter. I'm sure she'll say what you're up to. And and they just leave him there in the in the hallway. Uh, says, you know, we'll use him for the experiment. That's fine. Uh, they're handcuffed together. And the comic relief guy's just like, gosh, I hope he was talking to you and not me as being part of that experiment. And this sets off the start of just them in two lengthy scenes being in this hallway chatting about nothing. You know, they, 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 they work together. They develop a relationship by working together to sit down on the floor together because they're handcuffed. And then they're just chatting and they play I Spy together. It's weird. But... It's Ufa Bowl. But it's... It, I don't know. I, I appreciate the effort to try and be entertaining, but it is, again, another one of those instances where uh, these seeds go so long and are so clearly aimed to be comic relief that I can't tell what the the main objective was, the action movie yeah. or the comedy movie. Again, I'd say it was something that humor-wise got lost in translation, but again, that's not a German thing. It's lost in translation from Uwe Boll to everyone else. Well, again, Uwe Boll and his crack team, with emphasis on the crack, <laughs> arse crack, not, not the drug crack. You wouldn't be able to write a coherent script. And it is at least coherent. So, um, Valerie is given a, a tour of the facility and and is shown Max now as a super soldier guy. You know, so he's all pale and and muscular. And Krieger explains that he's you know turned him into a super soldier, and and now you know he's gonna be better than he ever was before. And she's like, "Oh, you're you're mad." And it's like, "All right." Whatever. <laughs> I, I kind of, I appreciate him. He's like, I'm, look, I'm not, this isn't about power. I'm just greedy. Like, I'm not crazy. I just want to be rich. And, and, and she's like, how do you live with yourself? He's like, I live fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I like him. I like his characterization. And he's the perfect actor to play that just utterly dismissive thing. So he does that well. He then takes her to see Jack and the food guy who are still handcuffed together and sitting down in this hallway. And when she sees him, she rushes right up to Jack and gives him a kiss, passing him the uh, handcuff key that she has apparently been holding in her mouth this whole time. Or maybe when she rushed up, she shoved it in there real quick. I, I don't, like, it's... Couldn't she just, like put it in his lap if she's rushing over to him like that because it would seem to me it would be harder to pass that key but uh anyway they're comically struggling or or the food guy is comically struggling because he's afraid to die as as krieger's basically saying that you know we're gonna kill these guys and that causes jack to very humorously swallow the key which leads to a scene where he now has to you know make himself hock it back up as they're struggling together and, and the food guy's freaking out you know but it's a you know it's a it's a it's a playback to him choking and getting the heimlich for the sandwich so you know it comes back around like that the the heimlich sandwich thing existed for the purpose of doing this joke later yeah and that's sad because neither of them were worth it well i mean again that that's part and parcel of overball comedy is Waiting a long time for payoffs that are not worth it, and and having it hammered home that I mean, I want to give it some credit for being a thing that serves to both ingratiate these two characters that have really nothing to do with each other, and you know, the 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 yeah. later comedy bit, but 
he knows how to make a film. He's just not good at it. That's that's what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Is it? He knows. It's not like he's so inept that he can't make a movie. He just doesn't make good movies. Yeah, it's like structurally, there's a. I could see looking at it. There's an opportunity here that you know it just doesn't wind yeah. up being fun. It just wound up being flat. It's just the writing's off and it's bland and he's not very imaginative and he has writers and co-writers and co-directors who also write and direct because it's all just a few guys just being bad at films so they manage to eventually get the key and unhandcuff themselves and get loose and then it cuts back to uh krieger's office i i want to note that like the design of Krieger's office because it's very curious because we had seen it before but only from like sort of a, a direct angles looking at people so you know he has his his easel with his canvas where he paints and and all of that and his desk but on the floor there is actually a window that looks down into the central like holding area where where they'd had Max just sitting there and they showed when they showed Valerie to before, who designs that? Who makes that their office? Why would you do that? Do you, you just need to be able to look down and stare into that, what seems to be a temporary holding place at any given time? And while I'm at it, God damn it, telltale Batman designers, okay? Batman yeah. is a lunatic. He's completely insane. I will grant you that. He's just completely beyond the pale, both in his over-preparedness for everything and the fact that he's just goddamn insane. His personality... I mean, the the whole, you know, the whole ca- character revolution these days has led to that whole, you know, flip side of the coin from the Joker sort of thing. Right, right. Broken, broken man, okay? Absolutely, sure. Crazy and impractical. Nobody is so crazy and impractical that they keep their chair to their big office desk in the floor. Nobody does that. That's a terrible idea. When you're ready to sit down, you just sit down. The space is dedicated to having a chair. And you know what? His desk isn't really tall enough to function well as a standing desk. He's never using it that way. He uses it in the chair. Why does the chair need to be in the floor? You know what, though? Everything about Telltale's visual design for the Batman games that they're doing smacks of different just for the sake of being different but not even having the imagination to come up with a radical redesign it's just we want this to look a bit different so let's just put a moustache on that one change the hair a bit on that one oh we reinvented them i kind of like the the penguin actually what they did to the penguin is interesting didn't they just copy gotham um no 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 the 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 penguin in um, in Gotham is a, uh, you know, like a, a criminal underworld rise from nothing kind of figure. I mean, I mean, in terms of visuals, like I thought they just tried to make him look a lot more like the Gotham penguin. No, no, no. I mean, they did make him, they, they did make him a thin, young, attractive guy. Um, he's... I guess that's my he is a, shallowness coming through. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit more IRA. If you you want to imagine a visual to the penguins, uh, upper, uh, yeah, downtrodden upper class, uh, pretender. I mean, yeah, definitely in in that sort of style. But I just thought in terms of the the way they designed him to look. 
And then everyone else was just no. I mean, but even visual, he's kind he's, of recognizable, but a bit. Different. He's a little more rough and tumble. He's not a dandy. He does have this suit that he wears, and I love. He's got this gas mask that looks like a penguin's face, a penguin head, and that's pr- it's a pretty cool look. Um, and the characterization is interesting. I just I find the the writing and design of uh, the Telltale. Batman so horribly inconsistent that I'm just I'm not enjoying it at all really I'm getting through it I mean I I played episode one and that was enough for me I'm three episodes in and you know there's still hope for this first season to come around but I know, and then I've seen screenshots of you know the characters that as they reveal them and I'm just yeah not inspired by the designs of them at all it's it's not it's not great so anyway Max uh, is is released uh, for testing by Krieger uh, to go and kill Jack and uh, the food guy, Emilio. The door opens to the hallway and and Max marches in, but he's not attacking. He's not crazy like the other guys. Uh, apparently the uh, experiment worked because Krieger says that he won't attack unless he gives the order. And this allows Emilio to sort of just walk past <laughs> Max. And into the holding cell area where he, you know, is like, oh, well, this is a dead end. Krieger gives the order to, to kill, but Jack appeals to Max's, you know, subsumed nature, I guess, uses the code word that they had between them and, and draws Max's attention to Valerie up above them uh, observing to get Max to not attack him uh, and, and sort of overcome mm-hmm. his nature. And just the door behind them opens up and he just marches through that instead. I don't know why that door was opened. Yeah, I have vague memories of this. Bit. I think I think that I think that that door opened because the plot needed it to. Yeah, it's like we're we're trapped in this. You know, we're done with this part now. And we're in this nowhere situation. Like there's there is no. We're at an impasse here between all of these characters. So, oh, we'll just have a door open up and have the guy walk out it. That's it. If you if you can't write your characters out of a situation, then just open the door. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and actually, then, then that uh, Krieger uses the same logic to deal with his problem of the intruders. He releases two more of his crazy genetically modified soldiers to go attack everyone. Uh, but Max, the, the refined apex predator guy, he's on the side of our hero, so he's helping to, to fight the soldiers in this really sort of poor action fighting sequence. You know, fighting happens for a bit, and... And, and Max ends up taking on some, and the, but the battle gets out of control, ultimately. And uh, one of the guys goes through um, glass to where the uh, there's a mounted gun that's supposed to be used for security. And so the security guards are trying to shoot at him, and it's not working and because, you know, they're fucking bulletproof, duh. And nobody's shooting these guys in the head. Nobody. Nobody's even trying. That's the weakness, though. The, the eyes in the mouth. Eyes in the mouth. And, and they should know that. But they don't. Or, or whatever. Uh, and and these, these guys, these are not like zombies in that they know how to use equipment. Like, so this guy takes the dude off of the mounted gun and starts laying down fire everywhere. And this shoots the doors of the containment cells for all of the other genetically modified soldiers, and releasing them. And so now the facility is going to be overrun. Mm-hmm. What winds up following for a long time is uh the mutants <laughs> the... do you know what's funny about this the sequence hmm. is this is when i was like 
because I was aware that I'd been drifting so much, I was like, right, for all the big climactic stuff, I'm gonna pay attention. <laughs> and then it was long and drawn out, and I got very bored yeah, and, it's, and wandered off mentally again. I mean, it's it's really just a lot of mindless shooting and running away from things and cuts to seeds where it's, it's clear that there are uh, divisions, you know, the mercenaries and the military are not really on the same side, but they're both getting slaughtered in equal measure by the mutants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a lot of cuts around, people being chased. and, and she, There's not a bad little parkoury type sequence where Jack gets uh, pursued by one of the genetically modified soldiers and, and they use the whole like industrial facility as their playground for the chase sequence. That, I mean, is, I don't know about exciting, but it's at least well shot. Maybe if that was like the only bit of it, like... And not it wasn't mixed in among just loads and loads of shooting and running and ah. yeah, it, it, but it's the, it just go dra- this part just drags out and out and out and out and out. I mean, if, for the same reason that I feel the comedy scenes do, I feel it more than anything else. The reason why there's so much, so many long comedy scenes and so many callbacks is the same reason, in all seriousness, that we get these long action scenes is because it fills the film. It fills up the movie. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the mercy... Two things you can rely on are long, awkward comedy sequences and long, awkward, pointless action sequences. And, and in the midst of all of this, the, the military, they want to retreat. Uh, the mercenaries are remaining loyal to Dr. Krieger and and they're going to help him who escaped the island. He sets up a deal with someone else to sell this technology as he's as he's escaping. And and, and gets a, You got to stay business minded. Yeah. He is very he's greedy. That's you know, we it was made clear that his motive his primary motive is money. So that's oh. what he does. And uh I mean it, it's not much different from Overball. Nope. Glass, glass houses and all that. Jack winds up meeting up with the head of the military guy who sort of gives him directions to where Krieger's boat is. And Jack goes off to deal with... I don't know why the military aren't all going to deal with this, but that's not what winds up happening for some reason. Good things, movie, happening. Yeah, and I just, I just can't care much anymore, if I'm, I'm being totally <laughs> honest. Uh, what, what winds up happening is uh, Max gets shot and Max the big you know bruiser genetically modified hero uncle gets mm-hmm. shot by Chernov and then uh most of the mercenaries die Valerie finds out <laughs> you've just, just lost I all just don't patience. care I really don't like I'm looking at the Wikipedia <laughs> description here and it's like yeah okay there's a fight there's another fight and what winds up happening obviously, is that uh, the heroes escape. (laughs) They get their boat. The bad guy goes to where his boat's supposed to be and just sees the boat leaving, and he's going to get killed by the... the mutants. And that's how it fucking ends. It's such an anticlimactic end that I didn't quite know that it was ending until the credits hit. Because even though there's a long, long, long drawn out action sequence, there's no sense of a final fight, really. No, and there's a there's a brief epilogue, you know, where we find out that Valerie and Jack are, I guess, in a relationship, and, and the cook is working on the boat, and then we get the tourists from the beginning to bring it all back around, and it the movie... Yeah. That's it. Fuck That's it. That's when I knew it was over when it was like, oh, they're back. Yeah. And now it's all yeah. resolved. And 
and he's finally got closure on the fact that she was kidding about him being a turd. Yeah. Because that comes up at the of end course. as well. I remember that. <laughs> Memory fragment. Fuck this movie. So Conrad, yup, yup, yup. No. I mean... Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> no. 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 Like, look, this is probably not Bull's worst movie. Right? It, it, it's... I, uh, even among like the bad movies we've seen, it's, there, there's a, a, enough technical competence here, enough understanding of, of what movies are that I can't like say it's a travesty. Mm-hmm. It's not good. And it is a movie to laugh at because the jokes in them aren't funny. Nah. What's funny is the uh, effort to make them. The fact that they are so committed to them is funny. That's the best thing I can say about it. Right. I mean, I can see that argument. I guess for me, I just... I've never had an Uwe Boll film fail to hold my attention. I've, I've certainly have... I've, have, I've had them fail to hold my attention. But for so long, to the point where, even after having the plot relayed back to me, I still only have a fragmented memory of it. Like, I think, I think the problem is that it is just bland. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's often my, why I, I, I would call a movie the worst of something. You know, it's why I said that Assassin's Creed is one of the worst movies I've seen. Yeah. I've seen worse movies, but I've not seen movies that mediocre. Yeah. And that's the killer. You know, I'll watch latter-day Uli Lomel movies before I'll watch Assassin's Creed again. I'll watch Uli Lomel's take on The Tomb um, before I watch that one again. Yeah, it's technically competent in a lot of ways, but not not particularly enjoyable. And, and it's not... If it were worse, it would be more entertaining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's... That's kind of where it is, and and like it I, was a victim of its own competence. I mean, I th- I think it's clear just from us just trying to talk about it how it's hard to develop any sort of enthusiasm for it at all, any at any mm-hmm. point in the film. So, ba- basically, yeah. Yeah, what are we doing next time, Jim? I don't fucking mm-hmm. know. I keep telling myself, <laughs> I keep telling myself, I'm gonna start, you know, like. Running a list that's five films out or something. And then I don't. Um, is there a last Resident Evil we've got to get out the way? The final chapter? Yeah, there is. Yeah. We haven't done the final chapter, have we? We have not. Do we want to just get like just get shot of it before they start with any reboots and shit? I think that's going to be important because there are reboots coming, I'm sure. Yeah. I think we should yeah. finally just pull that thorn out and be done with Resident Evil at last, however many years into this. So, yeah, next time we do this, two weeks from now as usual, as per Resident Evil, the final chapter. How about that for you? That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Until then... Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to hear more of our voices, you can check out the comedy podcast we do, Improvised Comedy Podcast, where we play uh, sleazy corrupt uh, marketing executives. It's called Fist Shark Marketing. You can look at it on fistshark.com or just look up Fist Shark Marketing at any podcast place. Until then, 
all that's left to be said is goodbye. So, goodbye. Bye.